Uh, and if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Joel. That's the minor prophet that we're going to be looking at tonight. A lot of people are thinking about victory about now. I believe there's a sporting event going on uh, starting in a, a little while. Who's going to win? Everybody's talking. Everybody's got predictions. Actually, I don't have a prediction because I don't know enough. But everybody's got a prediction. Who's going to win? Where's the victory? Um, Joel is an enigmatic prophet. He's, he's difficult to pin down. We don't really know when he prophesied. There are some references to places and events, but it's not enough for us to guess. And so anywhere from the 900s to the 400s B.C., but there is something you do know about Joel. He's about the victory of God. He wants to assure us that God's will will triumph. God's will will be victorious. How do you feel about that idea that God's will will triumph? Most of us, even good people, living in this fallen world, have an ambiguous feeling about the triumph of God's will. Because I kind of, kind of, kind of, at least part of my mind always wants my will to triumph, not God's will. And so I sometimes rebel against God. The message that God's will will triumph becomes in those moments a message of judgment. God's will will triumph, not yours, Jim. And if you refuse to submit to God, then that will bring judgment on you. Joel has some of that. In fact, that's how he opens. People who rebel against God, they will be brought into judgment. God's will will be victorious. God's will will triumph. People who call on the name of the Lord, People who turn to God, people who stand and watch the salvation of God, they will take part in the victory of God. They will take part in the triumph of God's will. That's what Joel says. It's a short little prophetic book, three chapters long. But he is focused on this idea, the victory of God, the victory of God's will. If you have your Bibles and are opened up to Joel, if you're in chapter 1, you can see that he starts with a prophetic description of a plague of locusts and a drought that are currently afflicting the people. It's poetry, but it's very graphic. The one... One wave of locusts sweeps over and eats this much. Then another wave of locusts, a different type, sweeps over and eats this much. Whatever this group didn't eat, this group comes along and chews up. Just a plague of locusts eating up all of our food. We live in a modern economy. We live where I can go to Walmart and get the bread I need. If you lived in an agricultural economy and watched that happen, what would that mean? That means my children are going to go hungry. That means that we aren't going to be able, maybe even to keep this land that we have. We owe money. We're not going to produce. 
plague of locusts. Joel talks about how they're like a mighty army in chapter 2. Since they march everyone straight ahead, they come over the walls, they come into the houses, they come in the windows. They're everywhere. God's army. God says, this is my army to bring judgment. Israel is under judgment. The people of God are under judgment for their rebellion. That's, that's Joel's first message. God's will cannot be denied. Everything in creation is His. And if I resist the will of God, any part of creation can be an instrument of His judgment on me. There's a drought. There's a, there's a, a plague of locusts. God judges me. And what, what Joel calls for is repentance. He wants a national day of fasting and repentance. We can't read everything in Joel. Well, we could, but we're not going to. Um, but look down in chapter 1, verse 13. Because God is coming in judgment, because God is using these things to judge our people, what should we do? He says, verse 13 and following, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go on in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off, cut off from before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. Joel calls for that fast twice, once in chapter 1, once in chapter 2. He says, this is what we need to do. As a nation, we need to turn. As a nation, we need to repent. As a nation, we need to put on sackcloth. We need to spend the night fasting, praying. We need to come together in God's temple, come together in God's house, and ask for God to spare us. A national day of repentance. Can you imagine that happening in the United States? Can you imagine a national day of repentance for us? I can't imagine a politician who could get away with calling for that. Not today. In times past we can, but not now. What would that look like? A national, where everyone is called, to say, I repent. God's will will be victorious I want to bring myself in line with God's will. I can't imagine it. People on Wall Street, people in Washington, people in corporate headquarters wearing sackcloth, going without food so that God will hear their prayers. And you and me saying, God, Please spare us. God, please bring us in line with your will. That's what Joel's asking for. He's asking for these people who are in a covenant with God to come together and repent. 
God's will will be victorious. If my will is out of sync with God's will, I will be defeated. Repentance means that I'm saying, I want to merge my will back into your will, God. I want to will what you want. I want to be the person that you have created me to be. Joel says, let's repent. Let's put our sins behind us. Let's turn to God and ask for His help. We're experiencing the day of the Lord, Joel says. This plague of locusts, this drought, this is the day of the Lord. Let's repent and ask for God's help. We don't know which episode this refers to. There are several times in the history of Israel this could fit, and we just don't know. But he says, this is what we need to do. Repent. Turn to God and repent. We don't live in a culture that's ever going to call a day of repentance. That's just not going to happen. I wish that we did, but it's not going to happen. And maybe as a church we haven't preached repentance significantly enough. So let me just say tonight, a regular part of what it means to be a person of God is for you to look at the way you're living your life and look at the way what God commands and to bring what you're doing back in line with God. A regular part of your life should be to judge yourself so that God won't judge you. Every day would be good. Every week would be good if you can't do every day. To say, God, how am I in light of what you've commanded? I want to bring my life back in line with what you are commanding. Repentance. Joel goes on. Talks about the way that the day of the Lord is coming for the people of God to Judah. And what can be done to push it away. And then, he says, what about the nations around us? The nations who are coming in and oppressing us. The day of the Lord is for them too. They're out of sync with God's will. God's going to bring victory against them. Turn over to chapter 3. Look at verse 9 and following. This is part of what we read at the start of the worship service. Proclaim them, proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up your warriors. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. We're used to Isaiah's passage about let all the swords be beaten into plowshares. Let's put away the weapons of war. Joel's doing the reverse. He says, you nations that have made war against God's people, 
You nations that have put your trust in your physical power, do your worst. Bring all your soldiers together. Turn all your plows into swords. Arm yourselves as best you can and come and meet God. And Joel uses a fairly obscure image. He says, meet God at the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Turns out the commentators are all over the place as to what the Valley of Jehoshaphat is. Some people say it's the Valley of Armageddon where Jehoshaphat and Ahab fought uh, against the invaders from the east and where Ahab was killed or he was mortally uh, wounded and eventually died of his wounds. But I actually think it's more likely to be the story uh, that's recorded in Chronicles chapter 20. And I know you're here in Joel, but if you can turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20 or at least make a note in, this, in your margin of your Bibles to look at this later. It's a fascinating story. The story of Jehoshaphat's victory. It's one of the few stories in Chronicles that's not told already in First and Second Kings. Second Chronicles 20, verses 1 through 3. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites and some of the Minyanites and, uh, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Jehoshaphat's the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom. From beyond the sea, and behold, they are in what is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Jehoshaphat sees this army coming. The first thing he does is proclaim a national day of repentance, a fast. Let's pray to God. And he goes and puts his case out. He says, this terrible army is coming. What should we do? And uh, one of the people that are there at the fast kind of receives the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Mathaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he says, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed by this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they'll come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. And that's what Jehoshaphat and the people of Jerusalem do. They, they actually line up for battle as if they're going out to fight. And they put their best singers in the front of the battle ranks. There's a lot of different ways to arrange your armies. That's got to be one of the weirdest. Let's put our best singers out there. And what do you want them to sing? Sing praise to God. For his loving kindness endures forever. Just sing about that as we march towards the enemy. So that's the song. That's the battle hymn of Jehoshaphat. Sing about the loving kindness of God. And sure enough, the army is right where the prophet said it would be. Right in this valley. And when they arrive, they see nothing but dead bodies. They don't have to lift a sword. 
because God had already fought the battle. Actually caused the groups to fight against each other, caused bandits to come out of the the hills and attack them. They're all dead. Jehoshaphat just goes and picks up the spoils as if he'd won the battle, but he didn't. God fought the battle. That's probably the valley of Jehoshaphat that Joel is thinking of. Because Joel says, all the nations, come. Whatever tools you've got, turn them into weapons. Meet me at the valley of Jehoshaphat. It won't be much of a fight. I'll be there to judge you. When I read this passage this time, I couldn't help thinking about the story, uh, the, the picture that we get in Ephesians chapter 6 of the spiritual armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that once you have it on, you can do what? You can stand. Doesn't say you can fight. Doesn't say you can leap over a wall. Doesn't say that you can have, uh, that you are called to even attack the enemy. It says you put on the whole army of God and you clothe yourself in prayer so you can stand. When Satan attacks you, you can stand. Made me think about Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, we see a rider on a white horse come out. His name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Before the battle even starts, he's already dipped his robes in blood. It's Jesus in battle mode. And just like Joel prophesied, all the nations are gathered together that want to be enemies of God. Now, a huge army follows Jesus in Revelations 19. People dressed in white robes, riding on horses. But if you read the story, none of them do anything. They just watch. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. God's will will triumph. And we Christians know it will triumph through Jesus Christ. You're not called to bring in the kingdom of God. You're not called to drag heaven down. You're called to stand. Be faithful. Be unmoved while God does that. The battle belongs to the Lord. God's will will triumph. There's one more part, I think, of this tight little book, the book of Joel, that we need to pay attention to. The day of the Lord uh, of judgment on the nations is that battle of Jehoshaphat moment. There's also a day of the Lord for God's people as God blesses them. There's a day of the Lord of judgment and there's a day of the Lord of blessing. If you have your Bibles, turn back to chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Look down in verse 23. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication. He's poured down on you the abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with wine and oil. I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent against you. God says, 
I did come in judgment on my day of the Lord of judgment against you. Now I'm coming in restoration. A day of the Lord is also a day of restoration. It's my will that everything that I took from you, those who have been saved, will have restored to them. And he goes on. He says, after that happens, in this section it's just a reversal of all of the things that the plagues did. Look down in verse 28. And afterwards, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. If that sounds familiar to you, it should. That's actually the first piece of Scripture that Peter uses on the sermon he preaches on the day of Pentecost. From Joel chapter 2. He and his fellow apostles are standing there and they're speaking in all of these different languages. They're talking about how great God is in Syrian and Latin and Greek and all of these other languages. And people are going, I can't believe it. This is what they speak back home. And all of a sudden I'm hearing God praised. What does this mean? And he says, this is the beginning of Joel. Joel's prophecy. The Spirit's been outpoured. The last days are here. What does it mean when it says, I'll put my spirit on old men and young men and old women, young women, sons and daughters will all be... Pro-. What does that mean? There'll be darkness in the sky. There'll be signs in the sun and the moon. What does that mean? All of that is about the end of the way things have been going. And the beginning of the way God's will wants them to be going. When it says, your sons and your daughters, they'll prophesy. That is an amazing statement. How common were prophets in the Old Testament? How often do people get the gift of prophecy? It's a fairly rare thing. There aren't that many. Few people chosen here and there, selected by God to serve in this ministry of prophecy... You, I'll put my spirit on you for a little bit. You, I'll put my spirit on you. I have a word that I need you to say. When it says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on everybody, not just on Jews either, it says on all peoples, all the nations. What does that mean? Well, it means something really different. The way things have been going are going to change. It's not really until we get to the New Testament that we find out what that means. That means that because of what Jesus Christ did, everything after Jesus Christ is different. The people who come into the kingdom of Jesus Christ become bearers of the Spirit of God. You have, you Christians, have more of the Spirit of God than Isaiah. You Christians have more of the Spirit of God in you 
than Jeremiah ever did or Joel. These are prophets of God. The Spirit comes on them so that they can give prophecy. You have the Spirit of God living in you. Every one of you is a prophet, just like every one of you is a priest. And every one of you is a king or a queen. Made that way because of Jesus Christ. Made that way in order to carry out a ministry. God has put His Spirit in you so that you can speak His message out to the world. God's will is going to triumph. You have the Spirit of God. You need to tell people God's will is going to triumph. The day of the Lord will be either a day of judgment or a day of rejoicing, depending on where you stand in relation to God's will. You and I have been called together to be God's people, to speak out that message, to say, you, now, bring your life back into harmony with the God who made you. By the blood of Jesus Christ, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel says that. Peter repeats it. Bring your life into harmony with the will of God because the will of God will triumph. If you need to respond to the invitation of God, if you need to respond to the great gift of salvation that comes through God, preached in the Old Testament, preached in the New Testament, preach down to this day that Jesus Christ has the power to save. If you need to receive Jesus as your Savior through baptism or if you need prayers and help that we can offer, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.